help us to hold on to all that we began in Easter um, and carried forward with you remains alive and vital that we give ourselves to the dying that you called us to, each of us, to trust, however vulnerable that makes us, to trust in you whatever, whatever ways we can die to, to let go of those things that sometimes mean too much of us to keep us from you. Help us carry that all forward um, to keep alive, even though Easter is beginning to fade. So, special prayer that um, that be so for all of us here. The reading that we're doing does that in some ways. We're reading it, it becomes a part of our memory, but we're coming together each week to try to recover it and hold it into the present with all of its richness, strengthen us in our efforts. Everything about this book reminds us of um, how, how serious our views in the world are, how well we read or not, and um, shows us again and again that we don't read very well we don't see very well, and sometimes we see worse than we think we do because we think we see so well. So help take away the blindness for all of us. Help let these works um, be given their place and strengthen us in our efforts to grow closer to you. Um, I ask for a special blessing for travelers, um, all of us, um, but... Um, <laughs> um, for all of us, um, while we're away, keep us all safe. Um, foreign countries are um, full of problems right now, so um, let everybody be safe in their travels. And I'm sorry, is it Nick? Um, watch over Nick. Um, we all need help. Um, we all go through dark times. Um, he's not alone. Let some help be given to him to know that he is not and to find a strength in others, the same sort of strength we all need. So watch over him, please. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm going um, to read... Um, um, the second of the two um, dark poems by Hopkins, We Did No Worse, There Is None. We didn't do the other, but we're, we're entering into a really dark time in Moby Dick. We're approaching the end. Um, the evil that, is, that Ahab is dealing with at the center of this book is, you know, contained by Ishmael. It's all within him. We only know of it because of him. And one of the things that we can say is what, Ish, what Melville is doing, doing is showing us the reality of evil, um, the importance of a tra um, tragedy in our lives. America has lost its tragic vision. It's, it doesn't. I'll, I'm going to come to that again because I think it's too important. America's lost any sense of a tragic vision, and I think that's a symptom of its decline. Mid... mid um, Mid-19th century, Melville is calling us back. There is a tragic action at the center of this story, but it's contained in Ishmael. And in some sense, um, Ishmael is respecting that tragedy, that it's, it's true, it happened. We, we have to seriously ask at the end whether Ahab is damned, and there's good reason for asking that. But even if he is, 
Um, Ishmael's vision of the world is essentially comic. It's what we would call in literature purgatorial comedy. It's a comedy that cleanses through suffering. It's a wisdom we come to through suffering. So even though at the heart of this there's the tragic Ahab plot, it's contained by Ishmael. And you, I've said this before, I'm going to stress it again, you know, I know from the critical reading, it's not extensive, but it's, you know, it's been my life so I've done some, most critics, lots of critics, read Moby Dick as a tragedy. It is not a tragedy. There's a tragic action, but it's not a tragedy. It is um, a wonderful, um, hopeful reaffirmation of a comic spirit. He's coming back, hopefully, <laughs> um, to be heard. That there's something there for us, like Jonah, that can help us avoid a tragedy in our lives. Um, so, um, I, uh, um, I wanted to just give a dark poem once again bef before we finish um, Moby Dick. Um, I'll, co I'll come to that in a minute. I'm going to talk about where we're going after this poem. But, but this is the second of Hopkins' two poems. Um, he wrote a number of poems in a dark period where despair was very real for him. He had to face real demons. And part of the beauty is that by giving them the form he did, he showed, like Ishmael, that a spiritual ordeal can actually conceal um, a great hope, a great grace given. Um, we know that from Ishmael, I mean, in Moby Dick, um, we know it from Shakespeare's tragedies. Um, so, and we know it from the Jonah story. We know it from the Jonah story, the Old Testament story. The Jonah went back to the Ninevites and they changed. So, Hopkins' um, second dark poem, I Wake and Feel the Fell of Dark, Not Day. I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. What hours, oh, what black hours we have spent this night. What sighs you heart saw, ways you went, and more must in yet longer lights delay. With witness I speak this, but where I say hours, I mean years, mean life. And my lament is cries countless, cries like dead letters sent to dearest him that lives, alas, away. Remember, um, one of the Beatitudes, just to bring, because I, I think it's appropriate. Remember, one of the Beatitudes is um, those who sorrow will know joy. Um, the poor in spirit will see God. That means, it doesn't refer to economic, financial poverty. It means those who are without God, those who long for God, who don't have, who are impoverished because they don't have God. They will know joy. So imagine somebody like Hopkins, who's a priest who converted, who longs for joy, to not have it daily. So he carries something of a suffering with him, always. Does that keep him from joy? No, because we've seen all of his other poems that are expressions of joy. But there is that sorrow that we can know, being, not being in the presence of Christ all the time as we might long to be. Um, with witness I speak this, but where I say hours, I mean years, mean life. And my lament is cries, countless cries, like dead letters sent to dearest him that lives, alas, away. 
I am gall, I am heartburn, God's most deep decree bitter would have me taste. My taste was me, bones built in me, flesh filled, blood brimmed the curse. Um, Self-yeast ye, self of spirit a dull dough sours. I see the lost are like this, and their scourge to be as I am mine, their sweating selves, but worse. The fear of death, the fear of hell, always in some sense hangs over us. So I'll read it once more without making a comment, just to go through it. I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. What hours, oh, what black hours we have spent this night. What sights you, heart, saw, ways you went, and more must in yet longer lights delay. With witness I speak this, but where I say hours, I mean years, mean life. And my lament is cries countless, cries like dead letters sent to dearest him that lives, alas, away. I am gall, I am heartburn, God's most deep decree, bitter would have me taste. My taste was me, bones built in me, flesh filled, blood brimmed the curse. Self-yeast of spirit, a dull um, dough sours. I see the lost are like this, and their scourge to be as I am mine, their sweating selves, but worse. Um, we scourge ourselves with our sins. Um, this is gonna, this is a sort of side note, but I was reading um, something that hit the homepage on the computer. I don't want to name names right now, but it was a guy talking about a number of Hollywood celebrities who had taken their lives. I went online to look at it, and the number of celebrities in Hollywood that have taken their lives is just astronaut. It's, it's stunning. I'm not going to go... But his comment was, um, they were too good for the world. When they, you know, Well, I mean, they, they were accomplished actors, very accomplished. I mean, the two that he had in mind, the two that he named, were extraordinary actors. And probably in the circles in which they lived, well thought of, loved, you know. And he said, too good for the world. Um, because he's responding to whatever it is that would have led them to take their lives. And I thought, how sad to say that, too good for the world. Remember this. <laughs> um, the world wasn't too good for Christ to die for. If God would do that for us, no matter how much we despair or whatever suffering, you know, we take on ourselves, whatever we have to bear at times, there has to be some joy in knowing that, that our God did that. So anybody who says too good for the world can only say that because they don't know Christ. Truly, take him out of the picture, what will people do? He thought enough of the world <laughs> to die for it. So there's every reason to be glad no matter what is going on in our lives. Okay. I'll look forward. Um, next week I'm going to try to finish up Moby Dick. Okay, and I know some of you are struggling with it. Some of you may not be, or I hope you'll stay tuned, but um, I'm going to try to finish it up. I'm, I'm not sure that I'll be able to, but that, that's going to be my intent. I want to, because I'm, you know that I don't want to linger on this. It's, it's you, you, we could take another two months, you know, I mean, I'm, we're, we're not covering a lot of chapters. I, we can't do it. I don't want to spoil it. So I'm going to try to finish it up. Um, and if I don't, I'll do it the following week. Um, and if I, if I don't and I f 
pick it up the following week, I will do it with the mind of doing it in half a class and starting Scarlet Letter. Um, I'm actually anxious to get to Dostoevsky more than I am to get to Hawthorne. But I think because of our work, it would just be important for everybody here um, to see that Melville was not alone. Hawthorne was doing something very, very different. But both of them were responding to the crisis in Christianity. The Christianity seems to be failing. And Hawthorne goes at it in a different tack, but he's still taking us back to our beginnings. I believe Scarlet Letter is about a refounding. He's actually going back to the founding generation. He's going to do something the founders could not have because of their theology. So it's like Melville dealing with, you know, Calvin's notion of predestination or inherent evil in man. So um, I'll try to finish it next week. Um, if I don't, we'll continue. We'll carry over to the following week. But I'm going to start um, Hawthorne. What I'd like to do when we do finish Moby Dick is take a week's break, because I've said I'd like to do that just as, as a principle. So um, when we finish um, Hawthorne, we'll take a week's break, and then, then I'm going to do, we're going to do Dostoevsky, uh, which I hope will be a world change for you, because it, it's really, in, in, in some inverted way, it's a picture of what America has gone through. Um, when Russia was influenced by all the Enlightenment ideas, you know, coming out of the 18th century. So, one, in one sense, it's, it'll give us a look at America. But that's what we'll do, okay? We'll do Hawthorne. I'm only going to spend four weeks on it, four meetings. I don't want to spend more. Um, f for those of you who are finished or are going to start Hawthorne, I would say this, um, and take this really seriously. Lots of people read past the Custom House. It's the opening to the Scarlet Letter. Hawthorne um, takes himself as a worker in the Custom House at a time when there's been a turnover politically. Parties have changed. And I, what do you call it, the spoil system? When, when one party comes into power and everybody who was under the other gets booted out and they, without, they're jobless. And he's in the Custom House and he's in the present. It's a, it's a comic parody of our present world at his time. But if you read it, you're going you're gonna to say, this is a description of what's going on today. Um, he's, he's describing a business enterprise. It's not the Pequod going out to sea. It's a custom house. But he's showing what happens to people when they turn away from their faith. When a religious people secularize, what happens to that when they do that? We've already seen that in Moby Dick in powerful ways. Um, we've got a Christian Protestant world, New England world, that is going through the motions of living their faith, but it's, it's a changed faith from what it was 200 years earlier. Hawthorne's going to be doing the same thing. The Custom House is not a story, and lots of people just skip it. They don't understand why he did it. The reason he's doing this is because the story that follows, the Scarlet Letter story, is a romance. And strange things happen in it. Um, it, it. It's much closer to a Catholic vision. Things that most people don't believe can happen, happen. It's like it, it's on the threshold of miracles. Um, and like Melville, Hawthorne was criticized because there was this romantic quality to his stories. If you've ever read them, you know what I'm talking about. He starts that book with the Custom House because he wants to make it clear that um, that, that 
story, the, the Scarlet Letter story, is rooted in reality. It's not a fable, it's not a, it's not a fantastic story. It's about adultery. Um, um, it's a serious sin. And for, I think in, in Hawthorne's mind, inherent, sexual problems inherent in our founding. So don't read past it, even if it seems businesslike and you know, it's, it's not a story like so many of his tales. Read that. Um, and when you do, continue reading through the first couple of chapters of the Scarlet Letter because you're going to feel like you've been abruptly taken out of our world and entered another. The world we will enter at that point will be our past. He's taking us back to our past to relive it, but he's going to do something the founders didn't do. It's what a poet can do with our life to bring a grace into our world that the world doesn't have. So don't just you know, dismiss the custom house. It's funny. It's not a romantic story. It's not an adventure story. It's, it's a parody, but it's serious. It's his way of, of saying, this is real. The story you're about to read is real. So, okay. So if you haven't, if you finish Moby Dick and you haven't started, start the, start um, Scarlet Letter and enjoy the custom house, okay? No, because once again, I'm, I'm not going to go by page numbers, I'll go by chapters, because there are too many editions. Whatever's, whatever you have will do. Um, I've got a, I think I bought it at Barnes & Noble, whatever it was, just because I was out of my edition. So, okay, Moby Dick. I hope I can do this justice today. Um, because what's on my mind is pretty grave and deep. We'll get to the outline in a second. Um, I'm going to read two passages to start our work tonight. One's from G.K. Chesterton about the Protestant Reformation, and another is an article that Suzanne um, gave me a couple of nights ago. And I thought it was so appropriate in view of what we're reading that I wanted to read from it, so I'm going to read from it. They're both on the notes. And by the way, <laughs> as you ought to know right now, um, I've made corrections to the notes that you've got. You'll have a cleaner copy online. So once again, go online and you'll have a, a cleaned up copy because I didn't, I didn't get to this in time. Um, but I'll read those in a minute. In one of the um, pieces that I've included in our notes, it's a piece um, that was um, um, published in Catholic Thing, which is an online journal. In that piece, the writer is um, recalling a work that T.S. Eliot had done on the metaphysical poets. That's not going to mean much to most of you, if any of you at all. But the point that I want to make um, so relates to that that I decided today, <laughs> Suzanne and I were driving here, um, this class is going to get very academic for a couple of weeks when we get to Scarlet Letter. You may want to rethink about coming. Um, it, it's going to get consciously academic in a way that I have tried to avoid from the beginning. Just I've not wanted this to be a classroom. And the reason for that is this. Eliot wrote this piece on the metaphysical poets and he was focusing on Dunn and the 70th century poets. And in that piece he's making a couple of claims which I think are just evidence of what an acute mind he had, what a, what a deep searching mind he had. He said that for the metaphysics, John Donne is the principal one, 
that they could not look at an ordinary reality, a stone, a book, and not see something metaphysical. We've been, we've been experiencing that in Moby Dick almost every week. When we looked at the monkey rope, just to take one example, he was looking at a monkey rope. How many men on the Pequod would have looked at that monkey rope and gotten out of it what Ishmael did, what Melville did? Is everybody following me? He said, he, he, remember, he's tied at one end and Queequeg's on the other, underwater, carving out the whale. And he's reflecting on that moment and realizing there's an interregnum in Providence, an interruption, that what's going on is unjust <laughs> because he should have to die because of a slip on Queequeg's part? And he described it in ways that I, I mean, I just, you know, because I told you about my own experience with it. I just thought it was delightful because it was such a perfect picture of marriages. There are times when all of us, I, I, most of us, I, I know, I'm, I think I can speak safely for Suzanne. There have been times in our marriage when one of us would like to have killed the other easily. Um, sleep separately, go, um, but... Um, but you remember my take on it, that, that when I read it, it changed my whole attitude towards flying because before that, I never wanted to get on board a flight because if God wanted somebody on that flight, why should I die for some jerk? And then I read this and realized the jerk he may have been after me and all those other people would have been dying for me. It was, I mean, it really was a turning. It, it, it flipped my reality and turned it inside out. That's an example of a metaphysical conceit, a, um, a, a, a trope, a, um, a poetic figure of speech. And you know that, that Moby Dick is full of them. Yeah? The monkey rope's one example. Um, who, who on the Pequod would have seen the connection between that rope? It's a material thing, tying one man to another in a perilous sort of situation. No more. He finds a philosophic meaning in it. Everything we've been doing from the beginning of this class with stones, stones talk, every work. There's the Iliad, the Odyssey. We have not looked at work in which what's going on in the world is not touched by something metaphysical. Yeah? And in one sense, and I've said this before, in one sense that's reinforcing our belief as Catholics because at the center of our belief is the Eucharist. We're taking a, a host. If some, a non-believer were to walk into church and watch this priest take a host and take two minutes and then the host is still a host two minutes after he blesses it, the guy would probably say, are you kidding? What, you, what are you doing? It's a piece of bread and wine. I hope everybody's following me, yeah? He's, that's all he's going to see. And there's, you know for us, it's certainly been one of, the, one of the purposes in my work here, is that we are always, as Catholic, asked to bring faith and reason together, not at the expense. The Protestant world has cut that in half. Nature's corrupt. There's no logos. Man is fouled. Um, not so for a Catholic. That's good bread. And it becomes amazing after the, you know, the, the, the blessing, the sanctification. So at the heart of our faith is a principle of communion. But we believe everything we do um, draws us into the interior, makes us one with another human being. Why did Christ cry at John or Lazarus? Why did he weep when he looked at Jerusalem and knew it would be destroyed? If he didn't carry that in his soul. 
So at the heart of our faith is um, a metaphysical principle. Okay? The claim that I want, and so for the next few weeks, I'm bringing Dunn to class. I'm not going to go through the poems thoroughly. It's, this is not going to be an exercise in academic. It's, I'm not, but I want to bring some Dunn's poems and just read them and point out um, some passages just so you have examples of what I'm talking about. Because the whole point of the metaphysical poets, and this is what's crucial here, in the 17th century, the West began to change. The scientific view replaced it. The Reformation came in, it changed it. Nature was fouled. The enemy now is no longer another man. I've been stressing this for weeks. The enemy now is nature. Nature is inherently evil. Ahab's fighting a nature that is after him. It's, it's full of malice and purpose. Okay? That's an effect. That's one of the byproducts of the Reformation. So the whole way we looked at the world radically, radically changed. We don't see the world. How many of us look at a stone or a monkey rope and find meaning in it? Go to, go to any of your jobs. Go to any of your jobs. A TV, a, a book on, or a paper clip, or, you know, whatever it is. How many of us would find a meaning that's metaphysical in the most ordinary thing? And yet, that's what the Catholic faith did up until the Reformation, the 16th, 17th century. Eliot calls the, the quality that entered our consciousness then a dissociation of sensibility. We were split. For Dunn, to smell a rose was a metaphysical experience. He would experience the rose, but there was also some other quality connected to it. That's why they're called metaphysical poets. Is everybody following? I want to stop in a second now. Here's my claim tonight. Um, Melville is doing that for us 200 years later. One of the phrases we could use to describe Melville is a metaphysical poet. He's returning us to mystery. Ahab's answering the evil of it. We're going directly at a, a Reformation theology, the evil of it. He's answering it, trying. It's a tragic action. And Ishmael is finding meaning in everything. He reads well. So how many, for example, how many of us find Christ in each other? Particularly if you'd like to strangle each other. <laughs> um, how, many, how many of us find Christ? Or how many of us can find meaning in a paperclip? Or You're all following. We live in a dissociated sensibility. We think we see and we don't see. I'll bring examples from Dunn. That's not the way we see the world. We live in ideas in our heads. We're, we're intellectual smart alecks. We want to show how smart we are when we're educated, and we live, in, we live in ideas. We don't experience the world as a communion where we're in, becoming one with something taking place in our lives. That's absolutely foreign to us. So Melville is returning us to mystery. And Bryce said that what he's doing is, is returning us to where Dante left off. Because Dante began where Melville ends up. Dante began with being, the being of things, that nature is good, God is good, everything created is good. If, it, if it's so, it means God is present everywhere in nature. We saw that in the Divine Comedy. The Paradiso is probably one of the best expressions of it ever written. When we start at the Paradiso, we're seeing glory after glory after glory after glory. Strange things are happening. And all of them are moving us towards indwelling. I hope you're all remembering. 
I am in thouing you, God is in, in othering me. Each one of them kept their individuality while they were becoming one with another. Because the source of that is the Trinity. The indwell, that's our God. We were met, we're not Buddhist. We're not meant to give up our individuality. We're made in the image of God. We're meant to keep our individuality, whoever we are, um, and also be one with another. That's a risky business. To be one with another can be really, entails a lot of suffering across. Are you all following? So the claim I want to make is we're moving towards the end of Moby Dick. I've been stressing the fact that there's a real tension going on. And Ahab's dealing with an evil. So at the center of this plot is all of these men have shipped on for a vengeance quest. They want to get back because all of them have suffered. That's at the center of it. Ishmael's a part of that quest. But very gradually he dissociates himself from that quest as he begins to look at things and find there is goodness everywhere. And it's metaphysical. He's always linking one thing with another. An, an ordinary natural thing with something metaphysical. A physical thing with something metaphysical. So this isn't just another, <laughs> you know, it's not just another novel. It's a novel about reading and a failure in the modern mind. That our, we live in dissociations. We don't see that way anymore. We live in our heads. We moralize. We lecture. Um, I, I don't think rap's an accident. Rap is a form of lecturing. Just somebody lecturing at somebody violently. Where did that come from? It didn't come out of medieval Catholic, medieval Europe. The songs that came out of that world. That came out of a modern world. And very much American. Lecturing, hectoring at people. Violence. Um, so what Melville's doing is, in a sense, refounding, returning us to mystery to help us to see that in, in, even in the face of some tragic action, some, something awful, there is this great goodness. Okay, let me stop. I want to I turn to the book, but any questions on, on that, what I'm talking about? Well, there has to be some questions. Something I'm, what am I not doing? <laughs> Michelle, you've got a question. Don't say you don't, because I know you do. <laughs> Metaphysical, that you said was like linking ordinary physical things with something supernatural? Yeah, like the Eucharist, or any of the, any, actually, remember, one, one of the things I've said, once you give up, like the Reformation, once you give up this, here, I'm, well, I'm going to get to it in our talk, I mean, when I open my notes. Once you give up the sacraments and the miraculous is gone, Christianity becomes a moral code. The sacramental life is gone. We have, we have no sacramental help in, here's the real, we have no sacramental help in dealing with evil. To what do we turn? Our natural goodness, that's good enough? Or grace in our heads? If, if, if spiritual evil is real, how do we answer that except with something spiritually real? You know, the Eucharist or the sacraments or... That's the predicament of the modern... One of the great predicaments of the modern world. Remember that I, I've said before, each of us is made in the image of God. It's what um, C.S. Lewis called the an, animus naturalite Christianity, the natural image of God in each person. If we were made in the image of God, 
it, it means, do we see each other as images of God in a Protestant world? The habit of a Protestant world is to condemn, to be negative, to find faults, to see evil. How easy is it for us when we're ready to blow up at somebody to, to remember that God is somehow at work and, and there's some goodness going on? How much a part of our consciousness is that for us as moderns? It's not. So one of the values of the metaphysical poets is that the poet that they wrote always involved that link, that that connection was made. So when you read it, you, you couldn't help but think in metaphysical terms. That like a, like a, one of his most famous images is of, of a compass, you know, mechanical drawing compass, um, which he compared to two lovers. That one of them had a fixed foot and no matter where the other one went, one was always faithful. He's comparing love to a compass, a mechanical, you know, it's things like that. Do we ever think like that? Not at all, not at all. A compass for us is a mechanical instrument. It would never have been. So Dunn lived at a time when a Catholic view, a sacramental, miraculous view, a sacred, was being lost and replaced by a scientific Reformation view. Dunn's writing exactly at that point, that's why he's so important. That's why for the next few weeks we're going to be looking at some Dunn poetry. Because I, I don't want you to leave Melville without seeing that aspect, that that's what Melville's doing. It's not a poem, it's a novel, but his whole way of seeing involves a medical. He's, Ishmael's learning to see that nature is not evil, and there's, remember what the, the term was? Linked analogies? All things are linked by analogy. If that's true, they have to have the same source. Otherwise, how are they tied together? They all imply a God. So what Melville is doing is really remarkable, absolutely remarkable. And most people can read him and think, fantastic. Most of the critics said, Child, childish work, wish Melville would grow up. <laughs> Yeah. Because I keep thinking all these weeks I've been listening about Herman Melville. He's not Catholic. Right. Okay. Right. But yet everything you can say tonight, I have to keep reminding myself he's Yeah, Protestantism is such a, I mean... Predestinacy, I didn't even think about so many Protestants thinking everything's predestined. I, I'm shocked. Yeah, wait, let me, let me make a huge qualification here. Remember, one of the important things to think about here, not to forget, Melville and Hawthorne are writing at a time when the Protestants are losing their foundations. It's a, it's a time of crisis. Lots of them were raised on those things it's a serious question how many of them actively believed in those things at that time at all. And it's got to be more so for Protestants today. I know there are. I thought, I thought Calvin was dead. When I used to go to the wreck, I would run into this woman and we used to have conversations all the time. She was a staunch Calvinist. I didn't, I didn't think Calvinists lived anymore, but they do. No. I mean, they really, they're staunch. Calvinism is alive, very much alive in, in the fundamentalist South. Very much alive. 
So there are lots of um, denominations that still hold on to those principles. Um, and it's one of the reasons that they justify um, distinguishing themselves from other Americans. But most Protestants don't have a clue about those doctrines. They're living Christ, believing, that great, believing very strongly that grace is sufficient. Reason plays no part. It's an act of faith alone. There are lots of people, scripture alone, who hold that seriously. Lots of Protestants who, don't, who are not reflective about those things at all. There are lots of Catholics who don't reflect on these things at all. So. Yeah, even that's a what what you can call a you know a radical moment, a great awakening, because it was actually it's going to go to the the passage I want to read tonight. But yeah, I mean the the, the process here, the Protestant world is in in crisis in America. The Protestant world is in crisis in Europe. John Henry Newman, Hopkins, both came out of that Tractarian movement mid-century. But the Christians had reached a point of realizing the broad church is too liberal, too sentimental. I'm going to read that in a minute. That it was in need of reform. And what happened when lots of those, during that crisis in England, when they began to explore the roots of their faith, they found out that, it, it, um, that the Protestant church in itself was the problem. Newman converted, Hopkins converted, a number of other really important figures converted then because the Christian faith had it's simply become too lax, too sentimental. So, you know, lots of people don't think about these things. Um, lots of Catholics don't reflect on their church. Here, I want to start with, uh, to get us into the book here. I, I um, included at the end, I hope they're here, God. I included at the end, yeah, I included, it's on the back of um, the front page, in page two. I took this passage from Chesterton. Um, God, I can't remember the date. I think, it, it, I think it's after his conversion, but I'm not sure. But I wanted to read it because it speaks so directly to what we're saying. But he's saying it. And remember, wait, um, just to go to your point, Cheryl. Um, Cheryl, that um, when Chesterton wrote Orthodoxy, he was... 20 years off from his conversion. He was Christian. Um, he wasn't Catholic. I can't read Orthodoxy without seeing a Catholic spirit informing every... The joy, the gratitude, the sense of the goodness of things. That it, you, you, we read it together. Go down. There were 20 disorders in the modern world. He named every one of them and took them on. Where in the world did he get that if he didn't have a sense of good greater than those wrongs to answer them? And he made them all intelligible so we could see with our minds, we could understand what was wrong and why. He wasn't Catholic, but 20 years later he converted. But I'd look at Orthodoxy and think, it's one of the most Catholic books I've ever read. It took me into the church. Um, here, this is Chesterton. This is um, taken from one of his weekly articles when he was writing um, as a journalist daily. I am firmly convinced that the Reformation of the 16th century was as near as any mortal thing can come to unmixed evil. Can you get more direct than that? 
as near as any mortal thing can come to unmixed evil, even the parts of it that might appear plausible and enlightened from a purely secular standpoint have turned out rotten and reactionary. Also, from a pure, purely secular. So, if you to go to your point, Cheryl, if you were to talk with Protestants, if you were to go to a church, you're going to find ordinary people just like us. Lots of them are deeply Christian. Their their faith isn't going to lack anything next to ours. They their faith is rock solid. And they're courteous, you know, they're good people. It's not like we're looking in the eyes of a demon. They're good people. And he's saying, if purely secular-minded people were to look at any of these dogmas, they'd find nothing wrong with them. Who looks at them? Chesterton happens to have a deeper mind than most people. That's why we read him. It's why he's still read today. But he's saying, you know, these, there, none of these beliefs on the surface give any evidence of anything wrong. They're all sound doctrines. Even the parts of it that might appear plausible and enlightened from a purely secular standpoint have turned out rotten and reactionary, also from a purely secular standpoint. He's saying if you looked at it just with the eyes of reason, like he isn't orthodox, he's not preaching in orthodox. He's not espousing a faith. He says, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm defending the Apostles' Creed, but he doesn't go into literally. He, he, he does not preach. He's not, um, what do you call it when you evangelize, when you um, proselytizing, and that's not the word, but he's not doing that. He's making rational arguments. Reaction also from a, from a purely secular standpoint, that is from a, from a point of view of reason. By substituting the Bible for the sacrament, it created a pedantic cast of those who could read superstitiously identified with those who could think. What's the ruling class in America today? Intellectuals, whose whole focus is, the, and whose pride of place is that they are better than other people because they read better, they're intellectually smarter. We, we rebelled against European monarchies because we wanted to get away with class distinctions. Are those class distinctions gone in America? Absolutely not. The ruling elite of America are the wealthy and the educated. That's our, class, that's our classless world. By substituting the Bible for the sacrament, it created a pedantic cast of those who could read, superstitiously identified those with those who could think. By destroying the monks, it took social work from the poor philanthropists who chose to deny themselves. The monks gave up themselves in order to help other people and gave it to the rich philanthropists who chose to assert themselves to show how good they are by using the money to help other people in need. By preaching individualism, by preserving inequality, it produced modern capitalism. It destroyed the only League of Nations that ever had a chance. It produced the worst wars of nations that ever existed. It produced the most efficient form of Protestantism, which is Prussia. And it is producing the worst part of paganism, which is slavery. That's it. It's, it his, remember, his argument was that most of the doctrines that people uphold today is as liberating are actually forms of enslavement. Um, almost all of them deny man's free will. Almost all of them deny God. They're forms of slavery. Those are the mental ideologies under which we live. I just want to quote a, a couple of passages from the Catholic thing. The author is writing about Eliot in this book called Meta, or The Varieties of Metaphysical Poetry. It's where he's talking about the, the metaphysics like Dunn and others. Um, 
Half a century earlier, the first auditors of St. John, John Henry Newman's sermons had felt themselves laid bare by his insights on the complacent religion of the 19th century. Newman was taking on a Protestant. He was Protestant, but he was laying bare the faults of a Protestant Christianity at the time. People listening to his lectures had to be uncomfortable because he was saying, there's something wrong here. Um, that's before his conversion. He's saying, we're not living our faith. Um, so he had, to make people, he had to make people feel squeamish. From the pulpit, Newman argued that modern Englishman had reduced religion's essence. Here's where I want to go. Had reduced religion's essence to kind sentiments and warm feelings and its outward substance to common sense moral duties. It becomes a moral code. The sacraments are gone. The sacred is gone. Sacred's not a part of anybody's life anymore except in people's heads. It was his great cause to reassert the dogmatic principle the Christian religion is a conviction of the mind, not just the heart, although these two qualities function together because we're supposed to bring them together. The Christian religion is a creed. It's a dogma. It's why the modern world wants to get rid of it. That's, that's why the Marxists want to, because as a dogma, it opposes Marxism. It's another dogma. Christians are getting in the way of this state that people believe we can accomplish. We'll get, we'll, if, we, if we carry out this Marxist revolution, we will end up having a classless society, a heaven on earth. Christianity is in the way of that because it has these dogmas. The Christian religion is a conviction of the mind, not just the heart. All these two naturally function together. The Christian religion is a creed, a declaration of belief about the way things are. Before, it's a practical ethic, although, again, these things function together. Um, Eliot, still more than a year away from his own conversion to such a dogmatic faith, was already arguing for it in the lectures. As if taking up Newman's cudgel, he hammers away at the sentimentality of 19th century religious poetry and of modern Christian spirituality more generally, before he takes an unexpected turn. Some of you are probably going to be angry at me here. How often do we get people um, whose whole approach to our faith is through these sentimental forms of spirituality? Christianity is a hard-headed, hard-headed faith. There's nothing sentimental about Christ at all, you know, when we read the Gospels. But here's where he went with this. Newman saw this. Eliot observed that St. Teresa of Avila, Avila, the great mystic, and Christina Rossetti, the pious Victorian poet, have one thing in common. When they write of their religious devotion, their love of God, they simply substitute the name of God for that of a romantic beloved. They substitute divine love for human love, so that the former takes the characteristics of the latter. So when Rossetti is declaring love for her beloved, the man, in a love poetry, she's in exactly the same language, seems to be expressing the same sentiment that one would express towards God except God's out of the picture now. So we've taken those romantic feelings that were once a part of devotion and a mystical life or the sacraments and directed at human beings. How well do we do as human beings in that kind of love? What we would call romantic love today. I hope everybody's following me, yeah? We've taken that language and applied it to a kind of love in which it doesn't, it's part of it. Can we love another being without loving God? Well, 
Their romantic love, um, all the mystics, the Christian, the serious Christian thinkers about, romantic love is a natural love for all of us. All of us. All of us begin it. All of us begin in it. Romantic love is ro projecting romantic feelings on the. Remember Dante's critique of this in the, in the uh, siren episode? We got to purgatory. Remember the siren took hold of Dante. He could not get free of her. Where did she get her power? From him. Because his love of her was idolatrous. I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to make, I have no qualms about, there's no other way to describe the love that I felt for Suzanne when I first fell in, I mean, I used to write these long, we used to meet in the library and I'd take these library cards and write these poems to her, you know. I mean, most of us start in romantic love. If we stay there, we're in trouble because there's something very selfish in romantic love. Christ called us to a selfless love, to learn to put ourselves away. Um, so the language is exactly the same that it was for mystics, but the object, the depth of it is not there. It's like an idolatry, we're taking a language and because we've lost that sense of the metaphysical, the spiritual, the mystical, the sacramental, okay? So those are just two quotes that, that um, indirectly um, touch on what Melville's doing. This is a comic story, it's very funny. Well, it's got a tragic, center to it. What's going on with Ahab, I think, is very modern. It's absolutely modern. We all carry that. We all carry something of that Puritan in us. Um, it's our inheritance. But it's, it's wonderfully hopeful. It's, um, it's, it's funny. It's a charitable humor. He's a delight to read. Um, he's thoughtful. He's reflective. So, let me stop. I want to go to the um, the, I, want to, I want to look at three things tonight in our time together. Any questions about the claims I'm making for Melville? That his importance for the modern world is great because he's actually answering our modern problems and returning us to mystery, to make, helping us to see that there's more going on in the world than we see with our eyes. Any One day I'm going to bring wine. <laughs> so when anybody gets up to get something, I'm going to ask for... Ask it again, just in a different way. Say again. Ask it again in a different way, and maybe we'll forget it, because sometimes you ask it so deep. It's like, I forgot... My comment about the wine? <laughs> <laughs> Cheryl, I'm not, I'm not sure... How did I ask it? I'm not even sure how I asked it. Okay. What did I, what did I ask? <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I, I, if it were a question, of, I mean, I've repeated a number. Do we see, Eliot said that the effect of what happened in the 17th century was what he called a dissociation of sensibility. We were cut in half. But we didn't bring a metaphysical and a physical world together anymore. We separated them. We live in a world of, Descartes has put us there. Modern philosophy, what we call idealists. We don't know things anymore. You've been hearing me say that. We do not know things. We don't know things. We can't relate to a thing. We, what we know are ideas in our heads. Everything about the modern world has put us in our heads. Does communion go on? Do, do, we, do we relate with each other the way we do with the Eucharist? 
Do we take that seriously? You have to be partly a mystic to do that, you know? Um, I'm not sure if that answers your response, but, because I'm not sure what my question, but that's basically what I'm, you know, the question I'm posing. And, and, and the reason I'm saying Melville is so important, because he's returning us to being, that there's this goodness everywhere. Um, is that the way we see the world? I don't think so. Let's, let's start, okay? I want to, I want to, I want to take up three themes tonight to move us towards the end. One is the gams. And the other is the contrast between the two worlds, as we've seen pretty clearly by now, the, the world of New England, the land, the world of the land, of institutions, and the sea, the world of sea, where ish, well, and here's, here it is. Who on land is dealing with metaphysical realities? Coffin? Bildad? Peleg? Hussey? Even Father Mapple? Nobody is. Nobody is. At sea, we can't go anywhere at sea without feeling. We've shattered that. We're at sea. We're in a form. It's, remember I said, it's, it's, the sea is so often an image of what is indefinite, what's mysterious, what is formless. It's there that Ishmael um, learns to make a metaphysical view, a way of life, in a way that's not true for anybody on land. Who gives, who gives things a thought the way Ishmael does? Coffin, Peleg, Bildad? So this contrast between the established forms of religion and what happens at sea where the crew is on this vengeance quest and these amazing things happen that, that help Ishmael see that there's so much more going on. That's the second. The third is what I'm going to call blessings in the midst of trials. And I, I want to illustrate each of those. So the gams is one. The contrast between the two worlds, the world of land and the world of sea. That is the, the world of physical things and the world of physical and metaphysical. That's what we experience at sea. And the third are what I'm gonna call graces in the midst of trials. And the best way to think about that is Ish or Ahab is giving warning after warning after warning, opening after opening to turn back. Does he do it? No. Um, Ishmael, Ishmael has several conversions. I'll, next week when we finish up, I'll, he has at least five that I can count. There are moments when something happens that radically changes his whole way of looking at the world. Does that happen for us? I've asked this question forever. After we receive the Eucharist and are on the way out to the car in the parking lot, do we have any sense of where we are at that moment? Remember I've said, when we receive Christ, presumably, we're with him in his kingdom. Do we carry that sense with us when we go out to the car? Um, so, graces during trials, those three things. So let me take them on. I'm sorry for my handwriting because it's just gotten worse and worse. But um, I want to go through um, the, a few of the gams tonight um, with the intention of finishing it next week. Now, sorry, if you look on my notes, you'll see a better, better image than I've given you there. Um, for those of you who remember the Iliad, most of you will probably not remember it very well, 
But if you went to the, through the Iliad, I, I don't remember if I, I think I did this with you guys. If you went through the Iliad, you could draw a circle and you could take every one of the battles, the very first one between Agamemnon and Achilles, Glaucus and Diomedes, I mean, you could go through the whole list, ultimately between Hector and Achilles, the one that finally brings the war to an end, in a sense. You could take every one of those battles and it would open up a different aspect of honor. What it, this is, here, what is the Iliad about? I'm not kidding, I'm not trying to artificially score a point here. What's the Iliad about? It's about the question of whether man has his inherent dignity or whether the dignity he has is imposed from outside, external. The more wealth you get, the more you can defeat somebody, the more booty that you can get, the more women you can have, the more of a man you are. Yeah? That's the Iliad. Nine years of war, getting booty and honor. It comes to a crisis when Achilles and Agamemnon fight. In book nine, that was the turning point. You remember when they came to Achilles saying, we offer you all this booty. Come back into the war because we're dying. He says, such booty, such gifts are a thing I need not. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. That's the turning moment because he's saying that he has an inherent dignity that doesn't depend on external things. If honor, if dignity or prestige depends on external things, wealth, mansions, homes, cars, education, it can be taken away. The Catholic position on abortion is there's an inherent dignity to that child. Um, it, it, it's, already, it's already human in the instant because we believe that every, every human being has an inherent dignity. Why? Because we were created, the soul, the immortal soul was created by God. To believe in predestination in the way that Calvin expresses it is just a horror. So what's at issue in the Iliad? What it means to be human. What's the issue today? What it means to be human. All right, can you say what a woman is? <laughs> I mean, it's laughable, but how, how stupid and violent you, you can't distinguish between a woman and a man? God. Um, what is the, I'm serious, what is the Iliad about? I'm not a biologist. <laughs> what is the Iliad about? What it means to be human. What's the modern quarrel about? What it means to be human. I quoted that book several weeks ago, the woman who wrote that book. How we became, how we became post-human. And I've said, if, if, we, if we can't distinguish between a man and a woman, and we can't distinguish the nature of a man from beasts, then we have no God. Because God assumed our nature when he came here. So there's almost no belief in the modern world that doesn't do away with God, or does not do away, that doesn't, isn't some form of enslavement. enslavement. What's the modern world issue about? <laughs> what it means to be human. So... Um, Remember, in the Iliad, you could draw a circle with every one of the battles. That's what's going on here in um, Moby Dick. We began with the Goonie, went to the Ho, the Jeroboam, and, and you know, we were up to the end. Next week, I will close that circle, and I will identify those. But every one of them forces this question on us. Where are we with respect to this mystery Remember what I said, that Melville is returning us to mystery? Where are we in the way that we stand towards mystery in the world? Okay?
And let me just go through them briefly. This is review because we've done this, but we've not put them together. The Goonie, what's it about? The aged who may have experienced the mystery but cannot tell others. Um, the albatross has a special look to it. It was bleached like skeleton of a stranded walrus. All down her sides, the spectral appearance was tracing with long channels of red, red and rust, her rigging furred over with hoarfrost. Forlorn looking fishermen, not a one word, just as Ahab calls out, if I'm not home, tell them, remember the shoals of fish swim away. Um, so the aged who may have experienced it without seeing it. How many people come to old age without having experienced mystery or Christ? Something as amazing as that. The town ho, you all remember that well. This is the counter story to Ahab's because remember Ahab had his leg bitten off. You remember that story, it's, it's about um, Steel Kilt um, who's ready to kill the first mate and suddenly they sight Moby Dick and they Remember after he'd planned the ball, he had it all ready to crush his skull at night when um, Macy came out, the, the first mate came out. And Moby Dick intervened, and he killed the first mate. And it's presented as um, Moby Dick sparing this man his damnation. So it's, it's, it's the opposite story, the counter story of, of, the, of the Ahab story. Um, Moby Dick's appearance just before Steelkill carries out his plan to kill Radney is viewed as a divine intervention. Ahab sees it as evil. He's, he's an image of malice in nature. He wants to get back at it. That's absolutely Protestant. Nature's corrupt. It's evil. It's viewed as a divine intervention. For by a mysterious fatality, heaven seemed to step in to take out the damning thing he would have done. He saved him from being damned. And the interesting thing, Tastigo learns it from a townhouse shipman and relates it in his sleep. The captains don't know about it, and it only comes to us through the irrational, through dreams, through sleep. Why? Ishmael tells it the way he did later, and remember to these Spanish friends who are incredulous, they don't believe him. Remember, they asked, it's Catholic, they asked him to get a Bible to... Why does Melville do that? Let me just stop for a second. We don't get this narrated in the story is a part of the adventure. We learn of it later. Um, but we get it through um, um, Testigo in his sleep. Why does Melva do that? Are you all following? Yes. That's not an accident of Melva's. He's too... Divine messages often appear as dreams. Say again. Divine messages often appear as dreams. Right. Yeah. They're not a part of a rational discourse because it's too, too much in our heads, too conceptual. You know, that some things are, are, have a mystical form. They're just hard to get a hold of, hard, hard to put words to. Um, is everybody following? Melville knows exactly what he's doing to show us these things. The Jeroboam, those who make a superstitious idolatry of the mystery. We all know, and I, I, I can't believe there aren't times all of us have experienced. We all know people who associate a metaphysical dimension to everything that goes on in the, in, in the wrong way. Jo, um, Pope Benedict, in a, in a, I, I would recommend all of you, it's a short book. It's called um, West, World Culture, Western Culture? Western Culture. It's a small book. 
I, it's a, just an amazing book. It's very short. It's about Europe and Western civilization. It's a wonderful book. In that book, in one of his chapters, he says, there's a pathology to reason. We know that. Chesterton's answering all these modern ideologies because they're examples of reason having gone bad. Um, but, he, but he couldn't do that unless he had a mind in which reason was working off of something good. How else could he answer them? But how many, how many people are capable of doing that? Chesterton was. I mean, he was unusual that way. But John, or Benedict says, there's a pathology to reason. Reason could go bad. He said, there's a pathology to religion. People can abuse religion. Often. They can make claims that something amazing just happened. We don't have any way of confirming it. It may have happened or not. Gabriel, the Gabriel story, is an instance of that kind of thing. Because remember, he, he thought of himself... <laughs> Here, after the Jeroboam left port, a shaker crew member announced that he was the archangel Gabriel. We, there are people like that. The crew was afraid of him, the cap, because they're all superstitious. The captain was going to put him ashore. Remember, he threatened them, and, and suddenly Gabriel ends up in control of the ship, not the captain. When they learned of Moby Dick, Gabriel told them to avoid it. It was the shaker God incarnate. He looks at that whale as that. Ships lowered. Remember, Macy has flipped out and he's killed. So it confirms, it, ironically, it confirms what Gabriel said. Um, so those who make a superstitious idolatry of the mystery or whom the mystery has driven crazy because super religious dimensions ask us to get beyond our rational powers to something beyond. The Jungfrau, which is German for virgin, those who out of ignorance or inexperience would be a better word. Those like a virgin, those who are inexperienced, um, who lack the art of wailing, you know, be, um, and the rosebud, and notice the word rosebud, which is a fledging. It's not fully developed. Out of sloth or indifference, never become aware of the mystery. Sloth and avarice undermine the art and blind them to what they're about. How many of us in our world, because we're so materialistic, carry a sloth into the way we worship. The, the, the reading this last weekend was Christ, when, remember, he just fed the 5,000 and the people come to him and he says, you came to me, he's rebuking them, said, so you came to me because of the feeding. I'm telling you, do not, do not labor for the food that does, don't labor for the food that perishes. Labor for the food that's imperishable him, the bread of life. It's, a, it's the, one of the severest critiques of materialism that's ever been given. He's saying too many people live for material goods. And we know one of the temptations, the first temptation was turn all these stones to bread. And Christ said, man doesn't live by bread alone. How much does the materialism in our own soul blind us in ways we don't know to mystery? To have all these things um, when Captain Derrick comes begging for oil because he doesn't have it, they sight whales and give chase. Derrick would have won had not a righteous judgment. That's stub, by the way. A crab caught blade of oarsman nearly causing the boat to tip. They kill the old bull whale, Rosebud. Stub tricks the captain to give the whale because he knows there's ambergris in, the, in it. He cheats him. I mean, if I can turn to that for a second. Um... This is in chapter 
Um, I think it's <laughs> chapter 90, um, 92, I think. Why, let me see, yeah, you may as well tell him that now, um, um, because he can't speak English. I've diddled him. He cheats him. And by the way, just another instance of the... Um, remember when Stubb was chasing the whale a couple of chapters earlier and he sees him and he thinks he's going to lose him? He says, $3,000, $3,000, a bank, a whole English bank. Because he doesn't see anything except in terms of money, of being successful financially. Um, those with superficial knowledge who can't reap even unintended benefits. The Enderby, remember, um, Captain Ahab comes um, to the ship and the captain has lost his arm to Moby Dick. And it's, a, it's, it's almost pathetic, but it's the sort of thing you'd read and, not, and wonder whether you were meant to laugh or not. Because the captain and the, the, the guy who performed the surgery, the, the scientific medical sort of minded guy who did the surgery, they laugh everything off. It's all laughed off. And in my notes, you'll see it's, it's, it's one of the ways in which you do everything you can to avoid suffering. This guy's lost his arm. Ahab wants to find out about it because he's lost his leg. And when he asks for information, the captain says, I've, I've already lost an arm. That's enough. I'm not losing any more. And when Ahab hears that, he goes back. So in every one of these gams, we're watching people in the various responses they have because of their occupation to avoid mystery. And remember, if the ship is an image of industrial America, that's us, it's meeting different facets of that industry because each ship has a different origin or a different mission and it has a different experience. So the question I think the um, GAMs are leaving us with, where are we with respect to this mystery? How do we stand to it? It's a, it's, you know, so if you go along reading Ishmael with all that he's doing, it's really interesting because the GAMs together sort of center a problem. Where are we? What does, the, what does our work do that may prevent us in ways we don't see from entering into this mystery? Okay? Let me, let me stop. Any questions on that one? This book is so deep. It, it's an amazing, just an amazing work. We've not seen its like since. That's how amazing it is. No questions on the GAMs? Remember what I, wait, give me one second, Mary. Remember what I said about the Iliad, that we can start with each battle and go through until we come to the end, and every one of them will define an aspect of man's honor. What it, what it, is, what it is that we fight for, um, that may keep us from what Achilles comes to, the sense that there's this inherent dignity, such honor is a thing I need not, I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. Um, so in the same way, we're watching um, people responding to this mystery. What's gonna happen, I'll finish it, I'll complete the circle next week, is that we're moving towards a crisis. The last couple of gams are um, tragic and sad. These are, 
stoic and you know they, I mean they're sort of dealing with ordinary things. What we're going to see at the end are gams um, that touch um, a note of sorrow and sadness. So be sure you read. Be sure you read the gams and give some thought to them. Mary, sorry, go ahead. His arm. I mean, his, his arm. I thought it was quite honorable of him. He had no malice toward the whale. He said, I, I have no reason to to go after him. Right. And they told Ahab he was crazy mm -hmm. for, for wanting to yeah. do that. So I thought that was a good thing on their part. Yeah. No, and, and there's, you know, to, to try to put the, there's some good in every one of them. You know, every one of the gams we've seen, it's not like these are evil men. Ahab's on an evil quest. But the question they're all raising is, um, how fully are they? And Ishmael and Ahab have entered into a mystery, both of them, pretty profound. Ahab's is dealing with inherent theologies. I mean, theologies about inherent evil. Ishmael was ident identified himself with that quest, but he's gradually dissociating. Something's happening to him. But they're both entering into a mystery. And one of the functions of the GAM is to make us question how much any of these people are really entering into a mystery. Um, we, could, we could ask it of Catholics. I mean, you could create a story about Catholics and make a circle and show, you know, all of us and leave us wondering where are we on this circle with respect to this, you know, how fully have we entered into it? Um, because at the center of it, for us, it, um, at the center of our is a cross. It's a bloody thing. Um, okay, let me take the second. Um, let's see. Um, I want to just look at a couple of passages to focus this. Um, remember that Bildad had said in the, the chapter called the ship or Ishmael said of him that for Bildad religion was one thing <laughs> business was a very and we saw that everything Bildad, Bildad and Peleg did was in business terms even while they were reading scripture um, take a look at chapter 93 and in its page I think um 482 here in our book. Remember that Pip, who's this little Negro sort of steward boy, has to take the place of one of the crew members on when they lower for a, um, to chase a whale, and fish is there, and um, Pip got so frightened by the motion and the motion of the ship threw him over overboard on page 42. Um, he's tangled up in these lines and, and Stubb goes on page 42. This is a couple of pages in on page 93, the castaway. Damn him, cut, roared Stubb. And so the whale was lost and Pip was saved. So they lost a whale. <laughs> you can imagine Stubb's good feeling about it. So as soon as he recovered himself, the poor little Negro was assailed by yells and exhortations from the crew. Tranquilly permitting these irregular cursings to evaporate, Stubb then in a plain business-like cut, 
but in a plain business-like but still have humorous manner, cursed Pip officially, and that done unofficially gave him much wholesome advice. The substance was, never jump from a boat pick except, but all the rest was indefinite at the soundest advice ever is. Generally, he said, I'll go down a few lines, moreover, as perceiving at last that he should give undiluted conscientious advice to Pip, he would be leaving him too wide a margin to jump in for the future. He didn't want to do that. Stubbs suddenly dropped all advice and concluded with a peremptory command, stick to the boat, Pip, or by the Lord, I won't pick you up. If you jump, mind that, we can't afford to lose whales. Money's more important to him than a human life. He says, you do it again and you're gone. Well, it happens, you know. Um, let's see. Pip gets, um, ends up in the sea again, and two boats go in chase. One of them is Stubbs and thinks, to his credit, I mean, Pip is, or uh, Ishmael is generous here in his description. He assumes the other boat's going to pick him up, but it doesn't. So both boats go, and Pip is abandoned. So this is, so in some sense, this is, I think, the counter image of Fadala. Remember I suggested that Fadala was an image of something fiendish in Ahab's soul. That once he committed himself to that quest, we read the chapter, he was damned. That Fadala is an image of something fiendish when man consciously go, defies God like that. I think this is the opposite. But it so happened that those boats without seeing Pip suddenly sprang whales, they took off. Um, by the nearest chance, the ship itself at last rescued him, but not from that hour. But from that hour, the little Negro went about the deck an idiot. Such at least they said he was. It goes to Chuck's comment a minute ago. Is he an idiot? Um, the sea had jeeringly kept his finite body up, but drowned the infinite in his soul. Not drowned entirely, though. Rather carried down alive to wondrous depths, where strange shapes of the unwarped primal world glided to and fro before his passive eyes, and the miser merman wisdom revealed his hoarded heaps, and among the joyous, heartless, ever juvenile eternities, Pip saw the multitudinous God omnipresent coral insects that out of the firmament of waters heaved the colossal orbs. He saw God's foot upon the treadle of the loom and spoke it. And therefore his shipmates called him mad. So man's insanity is heaven's sense, and wandering from all mortal reason, man comes at last to that celestial thought, which to reason is absurd and frantic, and weal or woe feels then uncompromised, indifferent as his God. For the rest blame not stub too many. Anyway, it's wonderful. It, um, it's an image in Plato's Phaedo, one of, one of his more important um, um, dialogues, he makes the argument that love is mad. It opens with this a homosexual guy who's trying, to, who's trying to put a move on this young kid, this young boy. And the argument is, stay away from the lover because love is mad. It's, love is mad. Everybody knows love is insane. And Socrates takes the argument and turns it on his head and he says, love is mad, but there are four kinds of love that are mad that are divine. Poetry, mysticism, you know, love between lovers, and another one, Apollo, maybe healing, that all of those have as their source something beyond reason. 
that there's something deeper going on. So that from that perspective, love is a madness. The description he's giving is of Pip is exactly that. That Pip, in, in his abandonment, saw, had this vision that's like the vision of a mystic. The, um, when I went to Italy years ago to teach there, I, I, had, I went to an audience and John Paul was towards the end of his papacy. And he, I, was, I was by chance, by providential. <laughs> I was there when I didn't even know that there was an audience that day. I was wondering why everybody was there, but people were just, you know, hoarding towards this. And some guy held up a ticket and said, "We have an extra, we have an extra ticket. You'd like it?" I said, "Sure." I ended up in the back because it wasn't a. And um, it was interesting. On the stage was a long piece of artwork. Let's say maybe ten feet, ten feet long and six feet wide. And it was an image of a coral, like a coral reef, where it was like an image of evolution, where you had a coral reef with a sense of insects or unformed things, with, with human skulls or human forms beginning to emerge, as if man came out of this. That was the centerpiece when John Paul on the stage. And I can't read this passage without thinking about that piece, that Pip had this underwater vision that in some ways corresponds to the vision that mystics have, this strange sense of going to the root of things and seeing something. After that, everybody thought he was mad. We have to ask ourselves is, if that's not the kind of madness that people have that's a good madness because it carries... They're not caught in conventions, respectability. They see something other people don't see. Um, so remember, we've had Stubb saying, we just lost $3,000. The, the Bank of England, the bank, you know, because losing a whale for him was money. And he says to Pip, you jump again, we're leaving you behind. We're, we're not going to give you up. And they left him. And the result of it was, we can call this an act of grace, whatever we call it. It, it left its mark on Pip. So with Fadala, we've got an image of something fiendish, but supernatural. With Pip, we have an image of something at the heart of the human soul that man's capable of that's mystical and good and blessed, but the world doesn't know it. Um, one last thing on this, because right now we're dealing with the way people see and what they see. Stubb sees only things in terms of their economic worth. Pip has been given a vision. Go to chapter 99, page 500. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read from this from my own notes. If if you, if you guys haven't looked at them, they, they would be good um, to look at. But remember the doubloon that Ahab nailed to the mast and said, "Whoever sights the whale gets this." There's an interesting. Take a look at take a look at this. I want to show you something. This is this is another example of. Um, Melville's genius. Chapter 99, I think it's um, page 500. What we get is a lineup of, of most of the major figures in the book going back, going past the doubloon and reading it to see what it signifies. Um, 
On it are three mountains and a sun behind it, and each one of them reads it in a different way. Let me just quickly, because I want to I cover this, it's too important. Starbucks says, I will quit it lest truth shake me falsely. Um, he, he backs away from it. Flass sees the coin in terms of its spending power for cigars. The Manxman sees it another way, in terms of an old witch. Queequeg tries to match images on the doubloon with tattoos on his thighs. It's an instinctive, you know, response of a barbarian. Fadala then comes along before the coin and makes a sign and bows. Stubb takes the gestures as proof of his being a fire worshiper. Pip finally appears and he says, I look, you look, he looks, we look, you look. I mean, he's sounds sort of mad. I mean, he's describing exactly what's taking place. Um, when Ahab looks at it, Ahab finds an image of himself in all of his kind of Luciferian um, mythic grandeur. Okay? So the, 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 the balloon episode raises the question that's fundamental to the whole work. How do people read things? Um, is, is knowledge subjective? Is it relative? Can things mean only what they mean to us individually? Or is there an objective truth to things? Um, what complicates the reading theme of this chapter is its frame-within-frame structure. Ishmael's reporting a story of Stubb, reporting a story of the crew, interpreting a story on the coin. So everybody following that? It's a box within a box within a box. Why does Melville do this? This is very much a scene dealing with reading and reading in a fundamental manner. What are we to take away from it? Further, how did Ishmael gain access to Stubb's mind and all that's passed through it? Can we trust Ishmael's e reading? Take a look at this. Go to, um, go to the beginning, chapter 99. Ere now it had been related how Ahab was wont to pace his quarter deck. We're going to get an image of Ahab going to the balloon and reading it. Go to there's two pages in, three pages in. Um, Ahab looks at it, murmurs to himself, and then walks away. No fairy fingers can have presented the gold, but devil's claws must have left their moldings there since yesterday, murmured Starbuck. He goes and reads it. Go down. This coin speaks wisely, mildly, truly, but still sadly to me. I will quit it, lest truth shake me falsely. Um, there now is the old Mongol soliloquized sub by the triworks. He's been twigging. Now what we're going to get is Stubb relating each of the other characters going up to the doubloon. Has everybody seen that? So it's, it's a narrative within a narrative. Is everybody following? We've got Ishmael narrating it. We get a picture of Ahab. We go from him to Starbuck, and then we get Stubb relating all the other characters. So everything we get from that point on is through Stubb. Okay? Why does Melville do that? Why does he make such a complicated... Ishmael could have told that whole thing. Right? And, and how do... And we've, I've asked this question. How does he have access to Stubb's mind? Stubb didn't tell him the story. We're getting it exactly as it happened, as if Ishmael could see into Stubb's mind. I thought Stubb was saying it out loud. Some of it is, but it's still, Mary, it's, it's when each of the characters comes after Starbuck, 
and Stubb, we're getting it through Stubb reporting it. He's describing. So it's not Ishmael describing it. It's Ishmael setting up something, Ahab doing something, and we get to Stubb, and then Stubb gives us the rest. It's all, and every one of them reads the doubloon differently. It's sort of like the chapter in which uh, they go wrapped in character to character on the deck that night early in the sail. He goes through the whole list of characters. Why does he, but what's he, I mean, the, the question it certainly raises for me is, it's, it's raising the question, it's a, is, is reality purely subjective because it means something different to each one? How do we look at this? Well, reality, whether reality is subjective or objective, there are different subjective views of it. And he's setting up this tension, it seems to me, where something's got to get resolved. There are different viewpoints about what really is the meaning of this double the whole voyage. Right. Yeah. And we have to settle on some one. Yeah. Or, I mean, I thought that we... Or, or sudden force, shortly. Sorry? Or it'll be sudden force, shortly. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and, and if you look at the criticism, and it's not settled, because lots of people are going to say, you know, I've said, uh, um, what, inscrutable mystery, it doesn't make sense, you know, there's nothing miraculous. I mean, modern critics are going to explain what I think is, ba I'm going to, I mean, you certainly know my position on this, I think it's a miracle, but that waits on next week. It also puts the human soul and human understanding in the right juxtaposition with the divine or with nature, take a pick, because obviously it's a much lesser power if they are so different in their understandings of what's happening. Yeah. As opposed to the one great objective. Yeah. I thought what you said a minute ago was, was really good. Because there is a way in which we each experience the world differently. There's something personal and unique to each one of us. Um, but that doesn't um, negate the fact that there is something objectively real going on anyway. Or we couldn't have the story reported as it is. Is that clear? There's, a, there's something going on objectively, even, even though it involves each piece and each, piece, each person seeing something differently in the doubloon. Um, and the question. So sorry, sort of like a man, blind man feeling the elephant. <laughs> but the elephant is there? I know, like feeling a different blind man describing the elephant. Oh, right. Has hold his tail when right. Right. He doesn't right. story. Right. But that's just the nature of human perception. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't catch it that a lot of the description was through stuck times. Yeah. But still. I think the important thing here is that Melville is acknowledging exactly that, that each one of us is different and each one of us will see something differently. But it doesn't negate the fact that there is something there that's objective to be seen. Do people see it? Because otherwise we wouldn't have the scene. It's objectively real. It happened. We take that. We trust it. Even if people are being shown to read it differently. That's a, that scene is taking place objectively before our eyes. So Melville is holding both of those things, I think, together, and it's interesting that it comes through Stubb again. I mean, that, that he's doing, like the story coming from Testigo in his sleep, or, you know, that he's, he's acknowledging it. There's such a depth to his thinking. Here, one more, because we've got to, even though Mary doesn't have to run off, um, Turn to page 493. It's um, chapter um, 96. It's the Triworks chapter. Now remember to this point, the only evil that we're aware of as readers, that I, 
I, I don't think we can assume Ishmael was aware of when he first set out because he identified himself with the quest, okay? But we know in the sunset episode, that chapter, that Ishmael sold his dam. He acknowledges it. He's given himself over. He's defined God. That's what he's doing. And it's in, in that sequence that Fadala emerges. And I'm suggesting that Fadala's a character in his own right, but he's also meant to, to function as, a, as an image of something evil in Ahab, something fiendish. Ishmael has been relatively innocent up to this point, but he's growing. And in the, so we're approaching the end. We're getting close to the end now. In the triworks, um, Ishmael's at the helm. The triworks is the oven in which the whale stuff is cooked. And one night, um, um, Ishmael has this experience. This is a couple pages in from the, from the beginning. The smoke rolled away in sullen heaps. To every pitch of the ship there was a pitch of the boiling oil, which seemed all eagerness to leap into their faces. Opposite the mouth of the works, on the further side of the wide wooden hearth, was the windlass. This served for a sea sofa. Here lounged the watch when not otherwise employed. Their tawny features, now all begrimed with smoke and sweat, their matted beards and the contrasting barbaric brilliancy of their teeth, all these were strangely revealed in the capricious and emblazonings of the works. As they um, narrated to each other their unholy adventures, their tales of terror told in words of mirth, they laugh at evil, as their uncivilized laughter forked upwards out of them, like the flames from the furnace as to and fro in their front, the harpooners wildly gesticulated with their huge pronged forks and dippers as the wind held on and the sea leaped and the ship groaned and dived and yet steadfastly shot her red hell further and further into the blackness of the sea in the night and scornfully champed the white bone in her mouth and viciously spat round her on all sides then the rushing Pequod freighted with savages and laden with fire and burning a corpse and plunging into the blackness of darkness seemed the material counterpart of her monomaniac commander's soul. So it seemed to me as I stood, now you know he gets turned around and for a minute he loses the control of the ship and he says if, if another second had passed um, it would have collapsed, crashed. Um, why does Melville give us this image? And what do we say about Ishmael at this point? Um, Remember when we first started, um, some of Ishmael's narrative described um, the ship is sort of going out to nature to, to violate, you know, to kill these whales. But this is demonic. This isn't just this isn't just a business enterprise violating nature. The image he gives here is demonic. It's all the men who are caught up in this quest who are now revealed, another aspect of them revealed. Let me put it differently, let me be blunt here. Um, you know from our work together that three of the greatest evils of the modern world is evolution, um, materialism, there's no God, there's only matter, um, and the modern state, it's Marxist. Human beings are no longer responsible for themselves. All humans are um, are, um, have been violated by their environment. 
um, by, by a Christian belief. The state in Marxist terms is, and when you combine it with evolution, it's on its way towards a heavenly um, paradise here on earth. There will be no more evil, there will be no more class distinctions, no envy, no pride, no wars. People will get along. All we have to do is get rid of things. People today take the position that criminals are products of their system. They're not responsible for their crimes. They're, they're showing the effects of a bad system. So when criminals commit a crime, people who hold that belief put them back out on the streets. It's not their fault. It's the fault of the system. If we, if we can only change the system, we'll get rid of crime. So every one of those beliefs, materialism, evolution, the modern state, deny free will, they deny God, they don't deal with evil, they don't face it. Um, is Melville going too far here? Or is he saying that there are aspects of evil right in front of us that we don't see except under certain circumstances? Because up until this time, Ishmael's not seen anything like this. Yes? Are you all following? But here in this scene, we're giving a, a lurid glimpse of a hellish enterprise. It can't get darker than this. Um, the sea leaped, the ship groaned and dived, and yet steadfastly shot her red hell further and further into the blackness of the sea and the night scornfully champed the white bone in her mouth, um, viciously spat round her on all sides, and the rushing Pequod freighted with savages. They all want to kill whales. And they're telling these gory stories of all the things that they've done in their life doing whaling things like this. And laden with fire and burning a corpse, and plunging into that blackness of darkness seemed the material counterpart of her monomaniac commander's soul. Remember, Ahab's fiendish. At the center of his soul is a darkness. What, in, what does evolution, Marxist state ideas, or materialism, how does any one of those help us deal with human evil in the world? The modern political stance is it's not people's fault. If we only change the system, we'll get rid of it. So here on this threshold, when Christianity is a crisis, Melville is showing this all from Ishmael's point of view. He's been on this thing, but now as we're approaching the end, he has this vision of how hellish this enterprise is. So either we say with the critics who criticized him when he wrote, this guy is nuts and he needs to grow up, or he's showing us something that maybe we need to see. Any responses or... <laughs> Good for you, Mary. Good for you. Good for you. So, repeat your last words again. We have to be vigilant at all. The church says, the church says, um, memento mori, remember death, be vigilant, stay watchful, pray. But is there another institution on the earth? We either really, Catholics are either really the most Disturbed, distorted people on earth, truly, because, no, I'm not kidding, because the way we look at the, the way we're encouraged to look at the world is so different from the way the rest of the world wants to see the world. So either there's something really wrong with our church, or there's something really right with it that the world doesn't see. I'll leave you guys to, here, one last, I'm just going to read one last. 
I'm, I'm going to read one last passage to go, and then I'm, no comments, just to leave it, because uh, it's, it's time. Go to um, chapter 94, page 45. Remember, this is after this chapter in which Stubb diddles that captain, he cheats him. He's really good at cheating. Um, um, and they, they capture this sperm city this special quality that blasted whales have, and that the other, the other captain was blind. Again, each one of the, each one of the gams shows something lacking in the way people see things. But um, when they get this stuff ahead, it puts Ishmael in this position, and it's a, it's a wonderful, it's another example of something that changes him. Chapter 94. As I sat there in my ease, cross-legged on the deck after the bitter exertion of the windlass, under a blue trans tranquil sky, the ship under indolent sail and gliding so serenely along as I bathed my hands among those soft, gentle globules of infiltrated tissues woven almost within the hour, as they richly broke into my fingers and discharged all their opulence. like. <laughs> This is something like out of Psalm of Songs. I mean, you, you know how sensuous that, I mean, I'm using that because it's, it stands out as, but this is so sensuous. As they richly broke to my fingers and discharged all their opulence, like fully ripe grapes, their wine. As I snuffed up that uncontaminated aroma, literally and truly, like the smell of spring violets, I declare to you that for the time I lived as a musky meadow, I forgot all about our horrible oath in that inexpressible sperm, I washed my hands and my heart of it. This is the first explicit separating of himself from Ahab's quest. I washed my hands and my heart of it. I almost began to credit the old uh, Periclesian superstition that sperm is of rare virtue in allaying the heart of anger. While bathing in that bath, I felt divinely free from all ill will or petulance or malice of any sort whatsoever. Squeeze, squeeze, squeeze all the morning long. <laughs> I squeezed that sperm till I myself almost melted into it. I squeezed that sperm till its strange, strange sort of insanity came over. But once again, Shakespeare did this. We did, we saw this in a Lear. There's a, um, a, how did he put it? There's a reason in insanity. Remember with Lear on the Heath when Glaucus and he were meeting and they both seemed mad? But they were seeing things that other individuals did not see in their suffering. And I found myself unwittingly, no, sorry. I squeezed that sperm till I almost melted into it. I squeezed that sperm till a strange sort of insanity came over me. And I find myself unwittingly squeezing my co-laborers hands in it, mistaking their hands for the gentle globules. Such an abounding, affectionate, friendly, loving feeling did this advocation beget. But at last I was continually squeezing their hands, looking up into their eyes, sentimentally as much to say, oh my dear fellow beings, why should we longer cherish any social acerbities or know the slightest ill humor or envy? Come, let us squeeze hands all round, nay, let us all squeeze ourselves into each other. Let us squeeze ourselves universally into the very milk and sperm of kindness. Um, I'm going to leave it at that. It's one. It's one. It's it's one. It's one. It's one of his conversion moments, and it's interesting that it happens with Somerset. But it's a it's a wonderful 
um, chapter showing um, that Ishmael is becoming clear in separating, that something is taking over his heart. That a, a tenderness and a love for other human beings um, takes over in this moment. So, any comments or before we stop? Yes. Yeah. Except I don't I don't think certainly not as tender or as universal or as squishy. <laughs> Read it, Doug. Say hold on, hold listen to Suzanne. She's it was on uh, It's four eighty five eighty six. Melvin's doing amazing things. He's just doing amazing things here. Um, we're moving to the, here, let me just, we're moving to the end. So next week I'm going to plan to try to finish it. Um, read, go back over the um, last gams. Read them again and, and um, put them together and see what you, see, see what you make of the last gams. The end is dark. It's a really dark ending. Ahab's going to do, and one of the things that's on my mind that won't be here, but I'm looking forward to doing Faulkner's Go Down Moses because Faulkner is, in a sense, answering Melville here. Because remember, this is about the outcast one, Ishmael. Go Down Moses is about Ike, the chosen one. And it's a dark modern view. It's Ike, Isaac. And um, it'll be interesting for you to see the contrast between Ike when he hunts the bear as a young boy trying to grow into manhood by learning to be a hunter, and Ahab in trying to take control of that ship when he's losing control, and he has to do things in order to get to Moby Dick. What that shows about modern man, um, what it reveals about Ahab, and finally, what I mean, the, the ultimate question, you know that I want everybody to... Um, Lots of people say it's just, it's a, um, it's, a, it's a book that doesn't make sense. It's inscrutable. You can't make anything out at the end. Is it inscrutable? Does a miracle take place? Is there a divine providence? How are we to look at the ending? Um, because Ishmael comes back to tell us the story. Who was it? Was it Mike or Bob said today, or one of you said, um, one of the hardest things to do is to figure out um, what Ishmael knows, exactly what he knows, what he's bringing back. Um, remember, this has all happened, and you, you know by now, not everything that he narrates took place in that voyage. A lot of what we're given comes from his reflections on a moment. So he's bringing something to us that he didn't have during the voyage, that apparently is the result, the fruit of what happened at the end. How do we read that? Is it inscrutable? Is he a Jonah figure? If he is, what is he, what is he telling us? Do we need to pay attention? This is on the verge of the modern world. All the modern disorders are religious and secular are laid bare here. What do we learn about ourselves, about our faith? Where are we in the gams? 
Are we going through the motions? Where are we on this voyage? So next week we're going to deal with what to me are the toughest questions, but we've put enough of the book together now, even if you haven't dealt with all the chapters, to have a good sense of what this book is about. Okay, so plan to plan to finish it. Look at the um, GAMs, and we'll see if we can finish it next week. Okay.